Farming Programme with Araquit Steel Stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate Gransom. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme. Good morning, this is Andy Marsh once again filling in for Steve Orchard who's taking a well-earned break. On today's Farming Programme we find out what the new sustainable farming incentive means for farmers themselves and what they might need to do to access the payments. They've also introduced, from what we have seen under countryside stewardship, some new actions that include things like having an integrated pest management plan or having a nutrient management plan. Plus this week sees the Great Yorkshire show at the showground at Harrogate. We find out all about it. We don't profess to be any better than any other show, we're just perhaps slightly bigger and all agricultural shows are doing a tremendous job. And we talk manure. You can make your own jokes up about that one. Plus, of course, there's agronomy from Sean Sparling, Oliver with the Livestock Market Report, Alice from Open Fields looks at the grain markets, and there's weather for the week ahead. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme. Now, last week we got reaction to the Sustainable Farming Incentive. Today we have some practical advice on what farmers might need to do and how they could benefit from it. I've been speaking to Ella Redrup from Masons in Louth. Firstly, I asked her what the main differences were between the previous system and this new announcement. A week or so ago, DEFRA announced that they were turning the Sustainable Farming Incentive new scheme slightly on its head and stripping away what we were going to have in terms of standards and bringing in a more pick-and-mix based system and approach that will allow applicants to choose a variety of different options like we previously had under countryside stewardship that are going to suit their farm and business. In terms of how easy or hard it is, is it going to be easier now to apply for that funding? In theory, it should be straightforward for applicants to choose what suits them. Gone are the kind of criteria that we saw previously under the soil standards. It hopefully will make it a lot more flexible for applicants to form a scheme that suits them. The scheme seems to differ in terms that um, more things are being asked of farmers to go down certain routes that was previously the case. The SFI scheme was very soil-based. Now they have stripped away some of those requirements for minimum areas of overwinter cover and left it a little bit more open to applicants to build their scheme. They've also introduced, from what we have seen under countryside stewardship, some new actions that include things like having an integrated pest management plan or having a nutrient management plan. Many applicants will already have these in place if they are red tractor assured, for example. Hopefully it will mean applicants get paid for things they are already doing which benefit the wider public. Is it likely to be the case that some farmers will look at this and think, well, particularly on the environmental issue, there may be things that they now want to do that they haven't previously done and that will be, well, hopefully relatively easy? With BPS well and truly kind of on its way to being phased out now, a lot of farmers and landowners are looking at the bottom line and seeing that income disappearing. Now is the time more than ever to really have a good look at this scheme and also countryside stewardship, which is still available to applicants this year, and look to see how some of that income can be replaced and also what can be done around the farm to enhance the farm's environmental credentials. Is it going to be in terms of filling out forms, etc., is it going to be fairly similar 
to what has gone before? They are making the scheme a little bit more flexible than um, BPS and Countryside Stewardship. Applications can be submitted at any time throughout the year. There's no application window. So the agreements can start around the timings for the applicant. For example, arable farmers may want to look for an agreement to start around kind of the end of harvest time so that it fits with their cropping regime. But you can start it at any time it's a three-year agreement. As they add more standards in, hopefully next year, those can be added to the agreement and you get paid quarterly now for this rather than a single payment that we've seen historically under countryside stewardship and BPS. So hopefully it will help that cash flow versus getting that one lump payment at the kind of the end of the year. Now this comes in in August. Are farmers able to sort of get the ball rolling and start that process before then? It's absolutely worth having a look before August. If people are interested in applying as soon as the scheme kind of becomes available again to applicants, currently closed at the moment, just whilst they're having this change around, it's absolutely worth starting to have a look and putting a plan in place. We know what those actions are going to be that are available. We know what the payment rates are going to be. So now is the time to get out the farm maps, start having a look at what areas can be put down, what are the perhaps less productive areas of the farm, and start putting a plan in place so that as soon as the applications are available and open again, you can get an application in and the payments then starting to come in. And they're they're talking about the first payments being received about four months after the application is submitted. So they're looking at a kind of a month turnaround time for getting the agreement in place. And when it does come to that application stage, is it pretty similar in terms of... um the actual logistics of it? Is it similar regarding what they need to do? It's all based on kind of which fields you want to include, what areas of the field you're wanting to put down to the actions. Some of the actions are static parcel-based options. Some are rotational. Some have to be used on the whole parcel. So, for example, if you're looking to do some soil testing, including organic matter and having a soil management plan in place, that's got to be done on the whole parcel. Whereas, for example, if you wanted to have some flower-rich grass margins or blocks or infield strips, for example, an option that we've seen under Countryside Stewardship AB8, that can be on the whole parcel or part of the parcel. That's the kind of information that you need to start building to kind of put together that application. Now, it might not be the nicest topic, but it is vital to the agricultural sector. We're talking manure treatment here. Steve Orchard's been finding out all about it with Simon Matthews from Agriton at the recent Groundswell event. Steve asked him to tell us all about what his company was doing with manure that's slightly different. It's not a steaming pile of manure that you'd expect to see. And it doesn't smell. It doesn't at all, does it? <laughs> yeah, so believe it or not, my hands yeah. filthy been, been stuck well in it already this morning. Basically, Bakashi, pre-fermented organic manure. So we're adding microbes into the manure or household composting size scale as well. Pre-fermenting it, all the nutrients are available for the microbes and earthworms. So they can grab onto it, pull it straight into the soil without have to add nitrogen to the products. So when you say pre-fermented, what do you mean? Do you pre-ferment it? Does, what's, how does it work? Right, so we supply a micro, which you spray on on a weekly basis during the house period. You're basically creating a lasagna for the farmers listening, a silage stack out of their dung. So you're spraying microbes on, you're adding bedding onto the microbes, 
on top of the dung. The animals are then treading it in, the same as what you do with silage. You add a layer of grass, you roll it down with your tractor. Because that's all we're doing. We're expelling the air because they're anaerobic microbes. And they are basically digesting the lignin cellulose within the straw, opening up the dry matter content so we're keeping the beds drier. All in all, improvement in animal health side of things, reduction in ammonia within the sheds, where it's a win-win for minimal inputs. Cost-wise, looking roughly £3 per 10 metres square area, uh, and that's over, you know, that's a monthly, a monthly costings. So, all in all, a very small investment for a massive return. So if you were to go and stick you know, 100 tonne of dung in a corner of a field, leave it unsheeted, after a three, four month period, you would see the ammonia you know, sort of escaping off of it, you would get the nutrients run off free from the rainfall. After a three, four month period of leaving it in the corner, you would end up with under 70 tonnes. So you've lost 35 tonnes through emissions, volatilisation and seepage. With this, if you put 100 tonne in the corner of a field, yes, you're pulling a sheet over it, you've got the microbes in it, you would be left with 98 tonnes. We're looking at retaining the nutrient within our farming businesses. All in all, it's a win-win for the, for the companies, for us and for the farmer. Right, so, all right, Simon, where could we go for more information about this? So if you visit the agriton.co.uk site, that'll take you right through to the home and garden and the animal husbandry and the Bakashi side or things. And you also see the, so we do other you know, sort of environmentally friendly products as well. And that brings us nicely to the regular look at agronomy. And as ever, that means good morning to Sean Sparling. Yes, morning, Andy. Drop of rain since last week then. It's made a big difference. Sugar beet absolutely shot off in the last seven days. Only eight mil for me, but up to 30 mil and more than that in some places locally. But then that's what happens when it's all about showers and thunderstorms rather than wet days at this time of year. Bit more of the wet stuff to come next week as well by the looks of things. But then again, what makes us believe this forecast of rain is actually going to come? Nothing really, other than that the combines are about to roll out of across the county on the winter barleys and that my friend is a nailed on cast iron guarantee that rain is almost certain to come and stop us in our tracks it does most years doesn't it so starting with sugar beet then the more forward beet crops are now well beyond the 16 leaf stage when the sugar beet plants become much less susceptible to the transmission of virus from the misers persicae and so the requirement for regular on your hands and knees aphid monitoring is almost but not quite over predator numbers definitely increased in the last seven days in my sugar beet especially ladybird adults and larvae, which should now be able to keep on top of most of those misers persicae larvae which are in the crop. Black aphids as well, as we said last week, we've been finding some of those in some crops over the last 10 days or so. They tend to initially build up on odd scattered individual plants and can look far, far more serious than they actually are. It's the more distressed backward sugar beet crops that will sometimes benefit from the control of black aphids if more than 10% of plants have significant populations. But, you know, we always used to say and still do it's a hundred black aphids per plant and only in the worst cases which could justify treatment and to be fair in most cases the predator numbers are going to prevent any significant aphid population expansion or crop damage that makes those insecticide applications pretty much unnecessary for black aphid we control pretty much done and dusted now and do make a note of any fields with conviso smart beet in them because next year's crops going to need something other than a sulfonyl urea to control those volunteers cmpp mc they'll do the job but make sure you make a note of it now before you forget not there yet but it will soon be time for the first fungicides to go on beet and we'll discuss that over the next couple of weeks winter wheat largely done now and thoughts turn into pre-harvest management planning where cooch ryegrass brome blackgrass etc need thick areas drying out to reduce that green matter 
in the combine sample. That's a couple of three weeks ago yet as well, to be fair. And the timing for glyphosate is when the grain has a moisture content below 30%, and that's when the grain will hold an imprint of your thumbnail. It's a literal rule of thumb. With most of mine ozy, only cheesy ripe at the moment, you know, as I say, it's going to be a week or three yet. But again, planning is the key there too. Bit of cladosporium about, along with odd bits of fusarium, colmorum, braminarum, poe, navali, in the untreated areas, the mist strips in field. Those that got a well time T3 seem to be absolutely fine so far anyway. Crops really starting to go home though these weeks on the sandy, brushy stuff. Fungicides are actually showing their worth very, very visibly this year though. Keeping these weeds nice and green and pleasant. Just go out and look at the mist bits in your field and you'll see exactly what I mean. Plenty of potential out there in these weeds as well. A few more drops of rain and plenty of warm sunshine for the rest of July and I think we'll be sitting pretty. Rust starting to show up now in winter bean crops like I said last week, especially but not exclusively in those fields that have only had one fungicide. The earlier chocolate spot infections have been controlled pretty well. And once we get to this end of the season on winter beans, once those pods and the beans in them are at full size, it's questionable as to whether there's any justification for any further fungicide treatment. Once beans get to that stage, late diseases like rust and chocolate spot can actually help us. They desiccate the crop. So speak to your advisor. Spring beans pretty much largely done too. Black aphids locally at threshold but not everywhere. One plant in 10 with a colony. I'm not really seeing that in mind this week, to be fair. Peas, final fungicides and pea moth treatments going on this week. Plenty of pea moth about, as I've been saying for a couple of three weeks. So pyrethroid best for that job. Pea aphids increasing too. Perimicar best for that job. And water volume should be kept above 150 litres per hectare. And they're best sprayed in temperatures above 15 degrees C perimicar to get the best out of them. And of course, this humid hot weather, perfect for potato blight. As I said last week, not a bad idea to keep those multi-sites going in and use all the tools in the toolbox. Hot, thundery weather like this means it's always blighty. Winged aphids were showing up all over the place in potatoes a couple of weeks ago, so the wingless nymph offspring are now requiring treatment in some places. Five wingless aphids or more per compound leaf in potatoes as your threshold for treatment with incist. Having said that, there's a noticeable fall in aphid numbers over the last seven days. The increase in predator numbers are I think will be helping there but do keep monitoring those aphids in case they increase again mind you at the, I think at this stage of the season and with predator numbers increasing at the rate they are that seems very unlikely to me and oilseed rape that's really the main focus this week and don't assume that just because it looks ready to spray off it is these crops are very bleached in some fields very green in others but the seed maturity is incredibly variable in the pods themselves so go by the middle pods if the seed in them is mostly brown with a, and red with a bit of black then that's your timing if you go too early you can lose up to three quarters of a ton per hectare in yield alone and as this is the time that these seeds are packing in the oil if you go too early you're going to ruin that too so patience is crucial just make sure you're only a day or two early if you're a week or 10 days early you will cost yourself a lot of money and glyphosate isn't a desiccant of course it just presses the fast forward button on the ripening process evening up the canopy it'll take two to three weeks to do its job depending on the weather but don't spoil the ship for a of the time. Many of these crops were still flowering around the end of April into May, don't forget. So make sure they're actually at 30% moisture or less, that the seeds in the middle pods are ready and it's the right time to go. Just make sure it doesn't look like it's ready from the track. Still a lot of green seeds in these middle pods, whether the canopy's bleached or otherwise. And the bleaching caused by the heat and the sunshine of the last 10 days or so can be very, very misleading in making you think they're further on than they are. So on that bombshell, let's see what the next seven days bring. 
The Farming Programme with our equipped steel stockholders with Umbrook Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme. Now, this is, of course, agricultural show season. Over the water, there's the Driffield Show taking place in just over a week's time. And this coming week, many Lincolnshire farmers will be heading to Harrogate for the Great Yorkshire Show. The stats there are impressive. Around 140,000 people go to the 250-acre showground. And this year's will be the 164th. It starts on Tuesday and runs through and includes Friday. I've been speaking to show director Charles Mills and I started out by asking him to sum up the appeal of the event. It's a four-day show and we perhaps have a very great pull at some of the UK's best livestock and entries anywhere that you can see. We have wonderful trade stands right across the showground. We don't profess to be any better than any other show. We're just perhaps slightly bigger. And all agricultural shows are doing a tremendous job, big or small, in trying to just explain a little bit about the countryside and what goes on in it. Actually, reading through some of the things that have been said about the Great Yorkshire show, celebrate the countryside is the key phrase that I saw there. Uh, Presumably a real major aim that you want to get across to people. I think especially since COVID, people do want to know even more what goes on in the countryside and we are here to try and explain. It's a great opportunity for the members of the public that want to know a little bit about where the food comes from and what actually goes on in the countryside. I'm guessing there are going to be plenty of old favourites returning as per usual, but are there one or two differences between this year's show and previous ones? Some are old favourites and your livestock classes are always old favourites, but every year we've been very blessed to have national shows with our cattle sections in Beef Shorthorn, Charolais Longhorn featuring this year. So even that section is slightly different, but we obviously have a main ring attraction which is different every year. And this year we have the great Lorenzo who rides these white Spanish horses on bareback and... uh, you know, this year we've reinvented our fashion show, which is on the shearing stage called Sheep to Sheik, which is discussing the importance of wool very much within the fashion industry and quite a number of our future farmers' organisations are the models for that. That's great. Last year we had sheep dogs in our main ring and was so popular we managed to create a brand new permanent home for sheepdog trials so we'll have that here every year now in terms of the show itself yes it's a great fun day out but also it's really important particularly for the agricultural sector you've got a number of seminars i've been reading about you've got biodiversity innovation in farming things like that Uh, just how important is it to get farmers together to talk and to listen to experts and to talk to each other In lots of ways, the show is very important from a social point of view. Farming has become a very lonely industry, and so it's a great place to get together. But, yeah, we do have some great debates. We have uh, a number of ministers come in and the Secretary of State come in. We have the EFRA panel come in, uh, hosted by Adam Henson and Sir, Sir Robert Goodwill, Mark Spencer and Minette Batters. So that will be a really lively and interesting debate, I'm quite sure, with the with a number of our future farmers' organisations attending it. Yeah, it's great to have debates and listen to politicians, but sometimes it is nice just simply to get together and see old friends that you don't see from perhaps one year to the next. Those politicians you mentioned there, they're going to be farmers who want to question them on various issues. What do you think are the key issues at the moment that they may get questions on? 
I would think security. Security of our industry is one. I am a farmer and we all need some sort of secure level playing field industry and at times that hasn't seemed to be the case. But the beauty of farmers is we all have different points of view and different thoughts on, on how politicians should react. I'm not saying I'd want to be a politician because it'd be very hard to please everybody but I think agriculture has become more and more important and people realise the importance of food so we do need security and those farmers on the ground need the secure playing field to be able to operate in. And of course it's one way of showing the farming industry to a wider public and I guess by seeing that it's also a possible way of attracting younger people into the industry which I gather is very much needed. Yeah it is, we're very lucky here, we have an organisation that probably about 1500 members of an organisation called Future Farmers, they consist of not just farmers but everybody that's associated to the industry and they are predominantly young people and I am very very proud of these young people that get involved in, in things like that I think the future of our industry looks terrific, it's going to be slightly different to my day in farming I think the industry is in a good place. I give them all my support and really do support young people in in general. Links FM Farming. Market reports. We start with livestock. It's a very good morning to Lav livestock market auctioneer Oliver Chapman. Morning, Andy. Another weekly roundup from here at Lav. Starting with the prime cattle with steers uh, soaring away to 303 pence per kilo or £1,739 per head for F. Wallace and Sons of Biscuit Hall. Heifers sell to 278 pence per kilo for JS Brooks of Strubby or £1,637 for H. Fotheringham and Son of Kexby, while a bull sell to 289 pence per kilo or £1,557 for R. Ray and Sons Limited of Lincoln. Onto the store cattle handy show, see both the steers and the heifers top for WH Jakes and Sons. Steers top at £1,100 per head with heifers to £1,150. Pence per kilo in the steers top by EB and A. Clark of Minton at 329.6 pence per kilo. And the heifers top at 303.2 pence per kilo for W. Taylor & Co. That wraps the cattle up onto the sheep, starting with the lambs. Uh, an increased show and a slight lift in trade again. Season SQQ of 318.13 pence per kilo and an all-in average of 316.19 pence per kilo. Top goes to Scrivelsby Farms Limited at 379 pence per kilo or £165 per head, with others from GW Allison and WH Orion Sons to £164 per head. Finally, onto the cool use and an even dearer trade than last week, an all in average of £137.10 to top with the ewes were NA and AC Collishaw or from near Holbeach at £194 per head while TB French topped from the same area of Holbeach the cool rams at £168 per head a huge thank you to everyone that's been supported this week both buyers and vendors we're back on tomorrow with prime and cool cattle and all classes of sheep so for all marketing of livestock please do not hesitate to contact me this is oliver chapman for masons and Louth market and thank you thank you oliver next it's the grain markets and open fields alice killam morning alice good morning andy unfortunately this week wheat has only seen prices heading in one direction Erasing recent weather-driven gains as forecasts added some rain to the drought-affected U.S. Midwest. The promise of rain and the USDA's unexpected 2 million tonne increase in maize plantings weighed on sentiment. It does, however, remain to be seen what actual impact recent rains has had on yield potential following the prolonged drought during May and June. Reports that explosive devices have been placed on a nuclear power plant in Ukraine added some support in a sinister development. 
Russia repeated that they saw no reason to extend the export corridor, despite the EU apparently considering a proposal to ease some of the banking restrictions imposed. Dry weather concerns remain in the US, Canadian and Russian spring wheat areas. Rain in the southern Russia as harvest begins is unwelcome and could result in quality issues should it continue. It is likely that the market will struggle to rally into harvest with large harvest discounts, which will encourage those with storage space to carry it. Russia remains the benchmark for milling wheat, although recent weakness in EU prices has eroded the differential significantly. The winter barley harvest in the UK has just about started on some of the early planted lightland crops. Early reports are not as good as we hoped with low retentions, but I must stress it is still very early days and we can't write the crop off just yet. The rain that most parts of the UK has had certainly came at the right time and has stabilised the spring martin barley crop and should see it through until harvest now. Molsters remain absent from the market, mainly driven by their customers not wanting to price fix at this time. The recent slowdown in beer sales has seen some nervousness around forward demand of malt. The craft brewing sector has seen a slight rebound in demand, which has been encouraging. The feed grain markets are still not improving, which means malting barley premiums are still historically high at this time. Export markets are slow and farmers are waiting to see what quality they have before coming to the market. To end on a more positive note, Matif Rapeseed started the week rallying back to €460 Euros as it followed the sharp gains in the soybean and veg oil markets in reaction to the USDA's soybean plantings. Also supporting rapeseed, the crop consultancy Strategy Grains has lowered its forecast for this year's European Union rapeseed harvest by more than 600,000 metric tonnes, as persistent dry weather affects yield potentials. Some guide prices of this week, circa Friday morning, feed wheat July 155 to 165, September 180 to 190, November 185 to 195, with Group 1 milling premiums for new crop still holding around £60. Feed barley, July 140 to 150, October 155 to 165, May 160 to 170. And finally, all seed rape, 355 to 365. That's all for another week. As usual, please call for firm values. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Well, weather-wise, it's a bit of a mixed bag this week, with temperatures dropping a little and the likelihood of rain at times and possibly even thunder. Not too much wind to speak of, however. The details, firstly today, dry with sunny spells and highs of around 23. Monday could see a fair amount of, well, almost anything. Some sunny spells, cloud, rain or drizzle and thunders even possible, with temperatures down a little on what they were at about 21. Tuesday is even more likely to see rain for much of the day, but sunny spells too, highs of 20. Wednesday sees sunshine and showers. And for the end of the week, there's a strong chance of rain, some sunny spells too, and temperatures around 20 Celsius. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme. Well, that just about wraps things up for this week. Thank you for listening. Next week, we talk Farm Safety Week, as well as the usual features. Have a good week in the meantime. The Farming Programme with Araquit Steel Stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts.